You're listening to the Vet Chat NZ. We're a local podcast hosted by vets and chatting to industry experts about the hottest topics in animal health. We hope you enjoy listening. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us. My name is Ellen Eyre. I have just joined Verbeck as a technical veterinarian. And for loyal listeners around here, um, you wouldn't have heard me before. So this is my first uh, sort of foray into the podcast space. And it seems quite fitting, actually, that I've got a previous colleague here, Winston Mason. He was my uh, mentor when I was a grad. So thanks for being here today, Winston, for my first podcast. No worries, Al. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And I'm honoured to be to have the first <laughs> podcast with you. That would be great. So we'll do a bit of a background for those who don't know you. I'm sure um, if anyone's been, you know, recently reading any sort of New Zealand vet journals, they would have seen your name. But you um, graduated from Massey. I don't know if you want to know, say when that was. Um, but Yeah, yeah, graduated from Massey 2007. Um, mm-hmm. And it's, it's been it's been a good part of a decade being a cow vet across the country, uh, mainly in the North Island, uh, and then with a, a few years stints in the UK. Awesome, cool. And um, and we actually, yeah, so I started down in Otrahonga and that's where you were for sort of, I guess, the latter part of that. Um, and from our time there, you you did seem to really like that sort of like bigger picture herd health um, side of things. Uh, you did, uh, went on to master's in veterinary science studies, is that right? And epidemiology. And do yep, you think yep. that sort of stemmed from that interest in that um, herd health space? Yeah, very much so. So I ended up, I actually did my Epi Masters quite early on, about 2010. So I went in doing the Epi Masters with the really the main goal to improve my, I guess, my veterinary uh, advice on, on farm. It was never, I was never initially designed to end up where I am now with you know, full-time research epidemiology space. Um, but it really, really did help, help being the clinical vet for, for a reasonable amount of time um, you know, with that high level herd picture stuff. Oh, that's awesome. Um, any correlation there between sort of like your interest in cricketing and statistics and that sort of stuff? Or, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, basically I'm a sad, geeky loser and I love yeah. it. So <laughs> give me some numbers and it makes me happy. Oh, that's well, we're all grateful when we receive that research because it's, um, you know, it's all very uh, clinically relevant, which is great. So you, you've you then gone on to um, start up with some colleagues, EpiVets. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, um, my colleague Emma Cousins and Greg Chambers, who have been on this podcast, both of them before, so I'm the third the yep. third of the three that have, have managed to make it onto the, the Vet Chat podcast. Um, so we set up EpiVets just over, just under two years ago. It's a, a clinical research epidemiology business. Um, we do all sorts of things, but the, the the bulk of the the bulk of the work is situated around New Zealand farming studies. So it might be pharmaceutical products, or our bigger interest is um, disease management and disease control across uh, New Zealand dairy farms. Awesome! Oh, that's great. And um, you were submitted your PhD now as well. Is that is that correct? Yes. Yes. Uh, I've just just got to the end of a really fun three three and a bit years uh, no it was, it was a good process uh, with a PhD thesis looking at dairy cattle lameness in in New Zealand so a pretty wide-ranging um, group of chapters and topics but it was a project passion topic of mine that I've had since graduating even before that even as a vet student um, so I got to I got to investigate a whole lot of topics that I've been thinking about for over a decade and it's been it's been a really useful process to go through but I can tell you I'm pretty glad to have had handed in now. I just get a week, weekends back. 
That is nice. That is nice. Well, um, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we really are here today. Basically, we'll touch on some of that um, sort of research and stuff that you've done. But what we really hope to achieve is a really good practical, um, sort of clinical relevant look at lameness in New Zealand. Uh, some of the findings that you've come across and how we can actually put them in place uh, to in, improve how we see how we approach lameness um, as vets in practice so um, I guess probably a good place to start would be um, with prevalence and how how we compare in the New Zealand space. A body of research in most farm diseases just seems to start off with prevalence I think it's a really good place to start just understanding how big of a problem a disease is. Ironically, it ended up being the last chapter of my PhD, but the, the timeline uh, process of it was that really was the, the first question that we wanted to ask is you know, how big of a problem is lameness in New Zealand? And doing a few years in the UK as a, as a locum farm vet really highlighted to me that, well, it, it suggested to me that we'd, we've got a pretty good here for lameness. Yes, we, we all know some farms that have pretty big problems, but my experience over there was, you know, <laughs> a large percentage, sometimes a quarter of the percentage, you know, out, out in a lame herd on, on any given day. So um, and a, a bit of a background, this has been quite a quite a hot topic in the last couple of years with two really good reviews, one big systematic review looking at the lameness prevalence across across dairy farming worldwide. And I've given a few presentations recently and I start off with this one slide of a review that came out just earlier this year. And if we averaged all of the lameness prevalence studies over the past 20 years in dairy cattle, we're sitting at approximately 24% of cows lame on any given day. So a quarter of cows in, the, of, in commercial dairy farms worldwide are lame on any given day. And every Kiwi vet and farm we talk to are rightly horrified by this metric. I gave a presentation earlier in the week to some international, um, international farmers and they didn't bat an eyelid. You know, that's what they expect. This is what they see. So I, I personally get quite upset about hearing that sort of information uh, and, and I should should clarify this is a this is clinically lame these are identified lame by trained technicians they are lameness score in our system two or three we're not talking about those iffy is she isn't she lame these are clinically lame animals identified by trained technicians so so with that figure um yeah that was where we even though it only came out a few months ago that was where we started with going like we know why well, pretty convinced that lameness worldwide is a horrific problem. Um, what's the status like in New Zealand? So I guess with that information, if we know we're doing well, how how do we identify as vets when we can make a difference? Like what is a problem on our farms in, in New Zealand? Yeah, so the, I think we're, we're quite lucky in New Zealand that we have some really good guides and really, really good um, information on how to control, manage and identify lameness. So the Healthy Hoof booklets and guidelines, I think they're, they're really useful documentation both for, for farmers and for vets. I know when I was out there, I used to carry the booklets with me in, in my in my ute, both for myself, but also to, to have some nice diagrams and, and figures to show farmers as, as I was training up or doing some lame cows. But in the front of that book, the front of the Healthy Hoof Prevention um, Guidebook, it had the industry target figures for both prevalence and lameness, uh, incidence of lameness. So prevalence is the, the percentage of cows lame on any given day. And incidence in that booklet, uh, incidence is the, the percentage of cows lame over a season. And at the front with prevalence, they, they had an, a figure of 8.1% lame, which, which, was, which came from a really good bit of work from Richard Laven and Jess Fabian about 15 years ago. 
on 50 odd farms. So I think it's, it's a really, really good bit of work. Um, but from my work going out on farms, I just felt that even though that's a lot lower than the 25.24% international figure, I, it still felt too high for me. Um, 8% just didn't ring a bell. And, and it was only from 50 farms as well. It's one study, 50 farms across New Zealand. That is what we're basing our, our I guess, our benchmarks, our targets, our expected values. And the, the average of 8.1%, Darren Zed also had uh, targets of anything over 10% on a given day should should um, indicate a problem and something that a you know, farmer or vet should do something about. And again, that that, that seems too high for me. If we have a thousand cow thousand cow herd, um, our thresholds of 100 cows or more before before we consider that to be a problem, it just it never sat sat well for me. Uh, so one part of the PhD we did was we uh, we took a random sample of 120 farms across New Zealand. So eight regions across New Zealand, right from Northland all the way down to Southland, because everybody knows cows are different in different regions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> never, never be able to get over that. Um, but we wanted to make sure that we had a good representation of different farming systems, more, more so yeah. than the actual cows, obviously. Um, so we had 15, 15 farms enrolled from eight different regions. And we went out and lamer scored them with trained technicians twice, once in springtime and once in summer. Um, we scored the entire herd as they were leaving, uh, leaving milking on concrete and recorded any animals that were lamer scored two and three. We, we didn't, it was like an audit. We didn't actually record the identification of the animals. We just recorded the, the overall tally that you know, the number of animals that we walked past and the number that were two or three. Cool. And our results from that uh, were, I guess from a from an industry standpoint, an industry selling New Zealand pro welfare were really quite quite awesome, quite impressive. So we, we got an average of uh, uh, an average of two point eight percent prevalence. So on these one hundred and twenty farms across the two scores, there was about an average of two point eight percent cows lame on any given day, and that has just come out uh, I think last week in preventative vet medicine. So that's out. Um, uh, hopefully it's open source. If it's not open source, it'll be in, in twelve months time. Um, out, out there for for everyone to see worldwide uh, that as a as an industry in New Zealand are doing pretty pretty damn well with um, controlling lameness compared to worldwide. But the problem with that two point eight percent is is as usual we had a big range. So we had some farms as there was there was one farm that had one lame animal out of five hundred when we went out and scored, and other farms that had up to seventeen percent lame on on any given day, and We've done some other work with these groups, 120 farms. The 17% farm and the 0%, well, not quite, but the, maybe the farms are about 12%, the farms that it were 2%, both thought they had a similar amount of lameness problems. So we have this big disparity between what's actually occurring on farm and what farmers believe or what farmers are telling us is occurring on farm. We, With that information, I've been talking to Darian Z, and hopefully we'll get some updates on these targets. I think I think going for around about 3% is the, is the biggest average average prevalence. I think that's a more realistic uh, figure for us to be using. But a more important figure will be that that sort of that upper threshold of when we when we consider that, I guess, from a veterinary perspective, when we should intervene, when we should actually say or suggest to a farmer that maybe maybe that's too high, maybe there's something that we need to be doing on, on farm. And from those 120 farms, we had an upper quartile of 4.5%, so 25% of farms were sitting at 4.5% or more. So we're proposing that a, a figure of 5% is probably a more useful and reliable figure. Um, if we're out there doing 
um, uh, I guess, labour scoring audits for whatever reason on, on farm, we're finding we're getting over 5% or a farmer's doing them and finding over 5%, I would consider that, that the, an updated threshold of when we should be intervening. Well, I think that's great. And that um, probably really hits home that point that um, as vets, we need to be asking more questions, not just how's your lameness going when you're sort of in passing in the clinic or on farm, you know, actually sort of digging a little bit deeper and sort of finding out what actually those numbers look like to be able to make some decisions around that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I don't, I'm an, I know it's a difficult discussion and I know just merely asking a farmer doesn't necessarily mean they're going to give us the, the correct response, but but I still think we can make a difference on some of these farms. We can actually get out there and offer, I've done it a few times, but we actually just offer to go out and lameness score. When we're lameness scoring, actually recording the tag numbers is a massive value add. I think we miss the boat there quite often with our lameness scoring as an audit. I think we can sell lameness scoring as a as actually a tool to help the farmer, not just a tool to to audit um, and see how they're going. So that's how I think we could, you know, we, we can get, uh, we can win both ways there. We can get, so get out there, get some technicians out there to identify how big the problem is. And then if it is over 5%, we've got those numbers recorded and we can then go and offer. They don't have to take us up, but we can offer as a, as a veterinary industry, we can offer and go out and help the farmer treat those 10, 20, 30 extra animals that they either didn't know, or I think a lot of the times they they do know that they're there and just aren't able or, or yeah, aren't able to actually get to them. So I think that's where... That's where the the conversation can turn in from a, you know, a bit of a negative to really actually going out there and helping these farmers. Yeah, absolutely. Now I'm probably jumping a little bit ahead here, but um, just because we are talking about going out and lameness scoring, um, in terms of um, you know, getting getting vets and stuff out there to have a look, you know, did you do you find that they're picking them up earlier or um, when they're out on farm, or is there much difference, you know, with with who's doing the identification? Uh, we didn't directly look at that, but um, John Alawi and Richard Laven back at Massey a decade ago did fantastic bits of work on on that. And, and I think it's a bit unfair to say, and I say it probably too often, it's a bit unfair to say that farmers aren't identifying lame cows. Um, Huxley would, John Huxley would get annoyed at me for saying that. So farmers are often identifying, they're definitely identifying the, the, the truly lame animals, but there's a quite a long delay between that from that occurring. So John Lowey's stuff down at Massey had I think an average 21 days from when a trained observer had identified them lame and when a farmer had identified them lame. And in that time frame, they, you know, they lose so much body weight. That was what the main bit of work was looking at. You know, they could lose up to a condition score um, before the farmers identified them as as being lame. Um, so again, that, that's the other positive sell we can say is rather than saying you're not identifying them, it's, it's actually just saying we're, we know you get to them, we just want to get to them early to prevent the negative impacts of the body condition score loss and we're getting more information now on the reproductive loss that they're getting, milk production loss that they're getting. Um, yeah, so it's just trying to jump in early rather than saying we're going to get lame cows that you're not, you're not going to get. I think yeah. that little, little switch in our um, terminology is quite useful. No, definitely. And, and sort of building up confidence, you know, in, in our farmers as well. Yeah. I guess that takes us quite nicely to um, the article that you did on recovery rates specifically. Um, and I, I noticed in there that, especially in terms of looking at recovery rates anyway, you guys were looking sort of a lot more frequently than had previously been done. Um, you know, not just going in at set points to, to, to find out when, when that was occurring. What what did you find from that? 
Yeah, cool. I, I'll um, give a quick, a brief summary of the actual study design because I know that a lot of it's understandably far too busy to read a very long technical um, uh, journal. I appreciate those that did, but also understand yeah. <laughs> you're out there doing uh, often better things. So um, the, the study that we undertook was simple in its, in its, I guess, idea behind it. We want to actually identify how long are animals staying lame in New Zealand when they're, when they're provided with what we want to call sort of best practice treatment regimes. And that duration of lameness question seems so simple, yet just has never really been answered sort of effectively anywhere in, anywhere in the world. And if we look at from the bear with me, I'm going to give you some epidemiology for a little bit. If we look at, I guess, the amount of disease or the, the extent of disease that's happening, we have three metrics. We have prevalence, so the percentage of cows lame on any given day. We have incidence, the number of new cases over a time period. And we have duration. How long is an animal staying lame for? And they're intertwined. They're clearly, they're clearly intertwined. Um, identifying incidence, accurate incidence measures is a very, very, very difficult ask um, for researchers. I, we would have to go out there if we wanted to do it by the book. We would have to be going out there you know, every other day for a, for a season um, because relying on farmer records for lameness. I mean, relying on farmer records for some diseases is pretty poor, but for lameness, it's it's nigh on impossible. Um, Jim Gibbs did a really cool bit of work in the South Islands um, doing just that. And even at a conservative level, it was quite a high incidence, incidence risk. But from a, you know, from a clinical research perspective, it's a very difficult measure to, to, um, to collect. Duration, on the other hand, we can get more accurate duration information from a smaller group of farms to see how long are these animals staying lame for. So one of our hypotheses was that part of the reason we've got really low prevalence in, in New Zealand lame cows is that we actually, they just don't stay lame very long. You know, their, their chronicity levels are much lower than, than um, particularly house cattle. Um, so we we enrolled five farms in the Waikato. Um, all of them are clients that Ellen and I um, have worked intimately with, and all very fantastic farm clients to work with. So it's quite a quite a good fun study to to be involved in. Um, and we got the farmer to identify all lame cows. So we didn't get involved there. We just got the farmer to identify lame cows as they normally or as their normal practice was, with the caveat being that we would do all their lame cows for them for free. So we would expect that they are probably a little bit more aggressive in their identification. But that being said, um, everything that they showed to us was clinically lame. So they weren't then just throwing some random ones with long hooves just just, just to get you know get us to do the work. Um, and I'll use the royal we quite a bit here. So when we went out, um, the farmer had these animals identified and we went out by we, it was uh, Dr. Mitch Cooper, who's recently just moved to Dairy and Z. And so Mitch Cooper did all the heavy lifting and all the, all the hard, real hard work of the study. He went and enrolled all of the animals that had claw horn lesions. So white lion or soul ulcers, uh, soul, soul disease. And yeah, and enrolled them into the study. So the same vet treated all, all of these 280 something animals or 241 by the end of it, 241 animals. And once they're enrolled, we then got our technicians to lameness score them every on average every four days until they were completely sound. So they started in lameness score two or three in, a, in our dairy NZ system. And we followed them until they were lameness score zero. Um, some of the work would just look at lameness score one, which is more like what I guess farmers would you know that's where oh she's she's walking better she's not 100 she's walking better and send them back to the um send them back to the paddock i personally don't have a lot of issues with that i think that's what i would do practically 
Um, but from a research perspective, we wanted to see how long it took them to, to become completely sound, to be walking like a racehorse. Um, so that, that was the background of, of the summary. And, and what we found was some of the, the shortest, uh, well, the shortest duration of lameness again reported in, in dairy cattle worldwide. So we have the lowest, the lowest or one of the lowest prevalence of lameness worldwide. Um, and we also on these, bear in mind only a subset of five farms, but, but these five farms had the shortest duration of lameness that, that been, had been reported anywhere across the world. And that's, that's just been out maybe a couple of months ago in the NZBJ. So across these 241 animals, we had about eight, took about 18 days to get these animals to lameness score zero and seven days on average to get them to lameness score one. So yeah, about 50% of the animals were taking a week to move them from lame to not lame and about three weeks to go from lame to completely sound. Um, and not surprisingly, we had, we had quite a range. You know, some were, some were, you know, you pick out the stone in between the claw and some were literally walking better out of the, they were non-lame out of the crush, um, all the way through to some that, well, there, there was only a couple that didn't respond completely, but we're looking sort of 42 days um, after, after, after treatment that there, some were still maintaining um, being lame. So I guess, can we use that information then, um, I guess, to influence how, off, you know how quickly we need to go back and reassess these animals um, once we have treated them. Yeah, I think so. I think that's a really easy win that we can add as vets. And I'll put my hand up here. I mean, when when I especially if you had big outbreaks of lameness, when you treat lame animals, you know, my, my 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 brain as a vet was just to do the best job of the treatment. Once I'd done the treatment, my job was done. And it's actually it's even to the to the level of the um, best practice during said dairy cattle code of um, welfare it there's quite a gap there so a farmer is required to to um treat an, you know, treat a lame animal within a set period of time 48 hours i think um and if they're not getting better or if they lameness score three they're required to do it within 24 hours and or call a vet but once they've called the vet and we've done our job uh there's nothing specific in the code of conduct about the lameness what happens there um, so I think we can, and I, I'm confident there's a bit of this from a farmer's perspective is from that oh, we've got to vet out, they've, they've done the job. Um, but we now have some information of on how long we should expect the average cow to, to be lame and stay lame for. I think if a cow, if a lame cow gets treated and gets worse, that's a no brain. I think everybody's comfortable with that. But what about those ones that started off lame score two, had pretty nasty white line. You put a block on them, you give a non-steroidal, she walks out about the same. There's the opportunity to to give some give some advice to the farmer, or give some um, give some recommendations to the farmer of, of what to do with that animal to for, to notice recovery rates and and I would put I'm pretty comfortable to say that if she's still lameness score two after two weeks she should be she should be relooked at. I know that yeah. might seem a bit of a, a push out, but I think that's at least it's better than what we're currently currently doing. I think particularly if we're out there treating lame animals, I think one one. Simple but pretty consistent piece of advice that we could be giving farmers is to actually record and and follow up with these lame animals. I don't, I'm not, we're not expecting them to do it every single day, but I do think having a formal process once a week of going through the lame mob, just as you're bringing them into the shed to get milked or as they're, as they're walking out, having a piece can be simple as a piece of paper, recording the lame animals. Um, they don't need to say lameness score one, two, and three. I think I patronize a farmer who can just say, is she lame? 
not is she still lame, just is she lame, is she lame, is she lame? And then then going back to the last week on the same, you know, same sort of booklet that says, oh, she was lame last week. Oh, she was lame the week before. Actually, we probably should relook at her again. Yeah. And I I know it's borderline, you know, it's quite basic and borderline patronizing, but but it just it, it's such a simple win that we can we could do um give advice to virtually every every farm around. Well, and I think a lot of the time it's it's not that um, farmers don't want to do the best for their cows. And I think just, you know, actually having that information and having that structure there with a the time, um, often, as you say, yeah, they, they see the vet and they, you know, check that off the list. Their list is so long, they just don't exactly. have time. But, but if we can give them a structured time and then a plan around it, you know, like giving some of that advice. So um, I'm assuming, yeah, recording's one step. Is there any other things that you would sort of recommend um, in terms of monitoring that recovery? I think making a plan is, it is the most essential bit. So formalize it. Like we have plans for what do we do with a mastitis cow? You know, there's, there's sheds all over New Zealand that have nice laminated vet sheets of what to do with the mastitis cow. I, I see a really good opportunity here to do the same for lameness if, if we're not already doing it. So, I mean, that could go right through to identification, but particularly around the treatment and recovery, I think we can simplify, have a consistent and simplify message and, and recovery does include monitoring recovery are they recovering and what to do if they're not so on this form i'd like to see you know you know she'd be lame for 14 days or more or is she getting worse revisit and and the revisit could be at the farmer level but if she's you know it could also be you know any concern call the vet immediately because in my experience often those ones it's it's just because we've missed something you know we go back there and it's, oh she actually had a toe abscess it's not a you know it's normally not a um I personally don't find them to be a major. I just, it just we need something formal that makes sure we do go back there and, and monitor and, and manage the recovery better. Yeah, and I think if they're not doing it on farm, I mean, this is sort of off topic as a vet, but um, as you well know, my husband's a dairy farmer and <laughs> he will often say that he's so surprised he will pick up a foot, can't see anything. And then three days later, he's like, you should have seen the amount of pus, you know, like he can't yeah. and can't believe yeah. it's got from that point of not being able to find it to a couple of days later, she's not right. He lifts it again and it's got to that point. So I think if we're not sort of proactively going back and looking, we, we may miss some things as well. And I find that more more and more likely and more and more challenging when we start to push early identification. We're doing that at the moment. So we're getting farms and vets to go in early for these cows and they're not finding the lesions that they normally would expect. You know, it's not this sort of big white line that you can just pair away, put a block on. Um, so that if you go early, there is a bit more of a, oh, we're not too entirely sure what's wrong with her. So I think even more having this recording process to just to validate to yourself that to you and to the farmer that you're doing the right thing for the animals is very useful. Um, we're, we're tracking animals at the, as we speak and it's a really it truly is a really good loop around that you are doing the right thing we're watching these animals get better within seven days with blocks on all these sort of things to go cool when we are doing the right thing it's not that we're going in too early or you know we're picking up and trimming animals that we shouldn't we're actually getting you know, some pretty good benefits um, and, and recording and noting these benefits that the farmer is seeing and the vet is seeing that's great. I just want to um, go back to that too early comment that you just said, because one of my mm -hmm. questions is actually sort of what your thoughts are on that um, preventative hoof trimming, you know, getting people out to sort of um, maintain in the herd rather than coming out just to treat. What what do you think Ooh. around that? Okay, good question. I'll put the caveat. <laughs> I, um, I've, I've researched this area a reasonable amount, but it's not my main area of expertise. Um, but I do have I do have thoughts on it. So <laughs> Uh, we've Richard Laban and the crew at Massey just published another paper actually very recently on on preventative 
hoof trimming in New Zealand. So we have two two good bits of work of preventative preventative hoof trimming. So these are well, preventative; they, they are not clinically lame animals. Um, that in New Zealand have not shown really much of an improvement in outcomes, and I think we we just need to to take that into consideration that when we're picking up an animal and trimming her, it's not a completely stress-free experience. So for us to get a benefit, it's not just do no harm. We actually have to, I believe that we have to see a benefit in these animals to really, for me to be promoting it. That's not to say that in brackets preventive hoof trimming and hoof trimmers do not have a place. I think quite the opposite. I think they have, they have an essential place in this early identification. And the best bit of preventative hoof trimming and where the evidence is slightly pointing to is when preventative hoof trimming has been done, it has actually been done in, under the umbrella of early treatment, early identification and treatment. So when we have hoof trimmers going out, doing the lameness scoring, identifying animals, first, often with hideous looking hooves, I, I think we should be doing those, um, but they're picking up those lameness score ones. So that's, that is where, where we, I mean, there hasn't been New Zealand work showing that, but, but overseas there has been that, that sort of targeted, targeted hoof trimming approach, I think is really where we should be looking at. Um, and, and vet clinics, probably should start if they're not already actually start discussing these with their hoof trimmers if they have a good relationship because if if we sell it well if you manage to, to get a few farms interested it's quite a lot of work you know it's, it's a lot of work if we don't have if you don't have a hoof, hoof crush you don't have a trained up vet and tech team um to be able to provide this information and advice on early identification you then need to be able to provide some of that treatment help and i see working together with a hoof trimmer really useful and very almost essential in that in that to work well, absolutely. I think um, a lot of people listening to this would think, gosh, we're already sort of struggling with the workload we've got. <laughs> so, um, you know, recruiting every farm wanting us to come out once a week is probably not a viable option. So um, teeing up with someone, you know, that we can work with and, and, and make that change early um, would be really beneficial. Yeah. And I understand we're not clearly we're not going to get all the farms involved into this immediately but we just we don't need to you know we could start with two or three two or three of your early adopters in the clinic um, we've got a couple couple around here at the moment that are doing it i think that's a nice way to start with the yeah, two or three farms that are getting us out there to whether it's a lameness score or just getting out there to improve training give advice around why we should be identifying early and then providing i think it's so critical to provide options on what to do if and when you find lots of lame animals, because the farms that need, um, the farms are the biggest problems are the ones that need early identification the most and treatment, but they're the ones that are still stuck with the really bad chronic ones. Yeah. And I think, you know, getting out there to go, right, farm, you can just carry on with the ones that you're currently doing, but we'll get you, the vet and the hoof trimmer can come out and give you a hand with these, you know, earlier lameness score two animals. And so if we if we go back a bit to, you know, the lameness score two animals, now that you've mentioned that, if say I'm going out there as a vet and I'm seeing these animals, is there a time that you would recommend, you know, do I, do I book in and say I'll be back in 10 days, I'll be back in two weeks, I'll be back in a week? Like what would your advice be there? Um, for the recovery ones to see? Yeah, for, the recovery. yeah. Because I guess are we, we could track recovery as well as treating any new ones as well, couldn't we, if we made sort of a regular um, yeah. time to be out. Absolutely. So if we're doing routine weekly visits for, say, a month, which I recommend for outbreak farms, just book a – and I, I know I don't do it anymore, so I, I can't really, um, you know, talk it up. But, but when I was going out there and saying to farmers the problem, look, how about we come out weekly for a month, I never had a farm say no, not once. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think offering that service, like putting a timeline on it is quite useful. If we go on Count Account every week, I think that's all, you know, that's to win, you know, till 2027. No, you say, I'll come up weekly on this date, this time, we'll bring a you know, vet and technician. Um, you just give me all the animals that you've got. We'll come at Lane the School. We'll come there. Yeah. Cool. And with that, so you've got your lameness score two animal, you've done the treatment. Is there other things that you um, have found, you know, in these studies that have really helped with recovery or, you know, other factors that really um, feed into that? Yeah. So the, the study that we did with the duration of lameness, it wasn't a clinical intervention study. So we didn't, we didn't actually have different, we didn't sort of treat these animals with different blocks. The published paper um, it was an observational study. So these animals got treated by the same vet, but with the big caveat of an animal must receive a block unless a reason otherwise. So these are all claw horn lesions, they're all white line and sole. Um, but as opposed to the sort of previous mantra of she gets a block if she's bad, it completely flipped that on its head. I think we need really good reasons not to put a block on it. Hoof trimmers have been ahead of us for a long way with this. They, they, you know, that's what they do. They, they put they put blocks on even some animals that aren't lame because they'll have such big, you know, severe lesions that they'll be carrying away. And we put blocks on 86% of those animals, wooden blocks. We, Mitch Cooper did. Um, and antibiotics were received in 2% of those animals. And we got those cure rates of, you know, seven days till they're, till they're non-lame. So we're pretty, pretty convinced. We don't know that I can't convincingly say that not having a block, you know, if they still wouldn't have cured fast, but because they are so rapid, if we're reasonably convinced to say that, A, we can get away with anti antibiotics. You know, that was, that was a really good thing to tell to these farmers to say yeah. we can actually get away with antibiotics. Yeah, um, I think that's, I was, I heard that 2%. I'm like, that's, you know, though, having those numbers to actually go out and show and those recovery rates to back it up would be quite helpful, you know. Yes, um, and even yeah, chatting to some vets okay. about it, that gave them, it definitely gave them confidence. Um, and we've got pictures of these lesions. They're not all early, you know, some of them were, uh, we did remove claw, uh, we did remove joint infections from the study, but some of them were still reasonably nasty white line disease and the two, 2% or two, I can't remember if it was 2% or two animals received anti antibiotics out of those 240 something. So, yeah, so I'm one of the, the, the Jewish, I do strongly believe that, that that's a really good message that we can do as vets is put a block on. So when we're actually going out there, we put a block on as many animals as, as possible. Um, speaking to Graham Hughes from Partia, you know, he, he's been, he's been putting blocks on, on, um, sort of axial foot rod, foot rod animals. And I'd never even thought of doing that, but watching him do it with the right animals, I actually, I, I get why, why he's doing that. They are walking out anecdotally and visually a lot better, even for lesions that I personally wouldn't have you know, thought to put a block on. Um, so I think we can lead from the front there with, with, with when we're going out treating lame animals is we should be putting blocks on as many animals as, as physically possible. Um, and there's a good target to have. I think if we're putting less than 50% of blocks on, maybe we need to think about why that is. Is it because because of cost, time, um, or is it because we're just not that comfortable or confident using them? Um, and we've got some really good training resources out there, some really good people out there that can help you know, vet clinics. We did one recently here um, to, to, to give confidence to put these, put these on better and quicker. That was going to be my next question because I do know that, um, especially as a grad, sort of the nerves that you were letting the foot down and watching them walk off, and and yeah. is that block going to stay on? So, is there any sort of one or two really, you know, good tips to to help with that? Or I guess it might depend a little bit too on whether you're using a slip or a block um, as well. 
Uh, yeah, the number one tip is you need a proper crush. I, I, I adamant with that, that, I mean, yes, you can get calcips put on in, in hearing bones and we have the, the legend of Chester who can put calcips on anywhere. But I think if we want to be promoting this use across, you know, vets, we can be giving blocks. When I say blocks, I do by the mean generic blocks, calcips, jandals, walkies, high heels. I'm, I'm not too concerned which one we use. It's that a cow gets something. One of those things, I just use the term blocks mostly. Um, and yeah, we, we want to be able to us personally doing them, but we also want to be able to train farmers to be able to do them or know who to point farmers to, you know, to, to know how to, how to get them on. Um, and across different farms, I mean, it's, it's the ones that have, have the worst application rates, I think are the ones that have the poorest facilities. It includes a cover. I know it's not possible in every farm, but, but if we have a lameness problem, I think that is when one of the best bits of advice we can do is actually discuss facilities. And we have, we see all the crap and we see all the good. Yeah. Um, and I know I was personally guilty of forgetting that some farmers are quite isolation. They only know their farm. They don't go around to other farms that often. They don't go and it's not their pastime to go and have a look at other crushes. So um, I'm suggesting actually developing a little like anonymous and not like here's good crushes. Here's what they look like. Here's bad crushes. Here's what they look like. That's not just Whopper or Wrangler. That's the overhang. That's the, the flow of these animals. Um, because there's so many different ways that that can work, but there's also so many different ways it doesn't work. Yeah, I mean, this isn't really related, but I just um, am remembering <laughs> from sort of back when I was clinical, not all that long ago, but um, a few years back now, uh, we had a farm and it made a massive difference. The owners, I know this isn't practical for everyone, but put a roof over the mm. crop and, and the um, staff were then much happier because, you know, they were seeing a lot of sort of lame cows it was really wet and they just were waiting for fine days to treat cows. So just, you know, simple yeah. things like that meant yeah. that they were treating cows earlier. I think that's huge. Yeah. And rather than give advice, cause I'm not the right person to give advice on how to put on different types of blocks. You know, there's new ones on there that I'd be useless at, but, but get the training from the people that are good at, good at doing it. They, they offer it. There's lots of people out there that can, or there's some people out there that, that provide these services and, and also they're really cool trainings to go to. Um, but I, I think it's down to the overall facility will be one of the, the most important things to think about. Great. And so you, um, I'm just picking out of there, you were talking about a cow cover as well. I have heard you talk about feed and feeding our lame cows. So I just was wondering if you could um, sort of chat a bit more about that. Yeah. 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 I forgot to mention that earlier. So I think if we go back and look at that duration of lameness article, so the, the other really cool finding, I think, in that paper is we, we got quite different um cure rates between the farms so we had four farms that cured around about the same and one took an extra 10 days for the for the average cow to cure um and we've got to we've got to remember that this was treated by the same vet with the same blocks with the same you know, slightly different crush obviously but the same management there's actually there's actually three farms owned by the same person that the one of the farms had much much longer cure rates than the other four and that was a bit of an unexpected finding. You know, we didn't set out to power the study to find differences between farms, but it was so so different that we, we did find that. And that really got me thinking about, um, I guess, yeah, it's, it's the whole the whole package of treating a lame cow doesn't isn't just about treating a lame cow. Treating a lame cow goes from right from the identification or chronicity of lameness, so its previous what's its previous status like from the before you actually get to that lame cow. There's how do we treat it. And then finally, how do we manage recovery? And recovery is, the recovery area is something I'm 
particularly interested in because I think every single farm in New Zealand, every vet, we can be giving more and better advice around this area without changing systems too much. So there's three things that I think we can be we can be doing. Um, virtually every every farm that has more than one lame cow um, is to have a discussion around their recovery plans for their lameness. So firstly, it's monitor their recovery. So as we mentioned earlier, let's actually formalize it, record it, and have a plan of of you know we're going to we're going to look at this lame mob every Tuesday and record the cow number and whether she's still lame and compare that to you know, previous times. So we've, we've said that. The second big thing that I love talking about is how are we feeding our lame cows? So lameness is, we all know that lame cows result in lots of body condition score loss. I think one of those massy studies showed up to 61 kilograms of live weight can be lost for a case of lameness, which is outrageous when you think about it. Um, so that, that makes sense, but there's also a wealth of evidence now on skinny cows are more likely to get lame and also stay lame. So you've got this negative cycle of a lame cow gets skinny and a skinny cow gets or stays lame. And these are sore cows. They, it's a very cachexic disease. Like any, you know, if we're thinking it's a cancer related disease, you want high energy feed that an animal isn't having to work too hard to, to get to. Um, but they also need, first and foremost, they need the quantity. They need the amount of energy that can go, go down their throat. And what I find more often is, a, you mentioned I'm a cricket fan um, at the very start, what I find more often, and unfortunately in farms that try to do the right thing by having lots of lame cows near the shed, is if they have a problem, that, that lame paddock or that sick mob paddock looks like a cricket pitch. You know, you can go out there and play, play cricket without it. You know, it, it's, it's completely mowed, yeah. mowed dry. Yeah. And I, I think... We don't have to be nutritious. I mean, I'm not a nutritious in the in the slightest, but just that, just that, open up the conversation of how are you, you know, what dry matter are you, um, are you allocating these animals? What sort of feed? You know, are you still expecting them to to graze the same area, walk around as much? Um, that is a bit of a sort of light bulb moment for a lot of farmers. It's like, oh, actually, I've got 50 lame cows out of 500. You're right. I haven't I haven't actually allocated anywhere near, so it might be more, but not anywhere near enough to these animals. So I end up feeding the 450 cows more and those 50 cows less. Um, some farms are probably right on top of it, but I, from my experience, that's just a, especially in lameness problems, they've got so many other things to think about. Um, that, that That's something that we can add, um, I think, information and advice to virtually every farmer. Yeah, that's great. And yeah, I'm, I'm sure the other 450 cows will be happy about it. But um, yeah. yeah, they're the ones that don't need it as much. So we need to think about those, um, those poor other girls. And that comes in the plan quite well. So again, I don't know how long how big these A3 pieces of paper on the wall will be. But, um, you know, just a simple bullet point to the managers and owners might understand it. But if it's a two IC or one of the workers that are putting the brakes up or feeding the cows, just, you know, in, ensure lame cows are fed appropriately, or, you know, that the lame cows are getting getting x kilograms of dry matter of this feed um, at all times i think that's quite yeah, quite an important addition yeah absolutely now i, I want to go back just um a little bit to that early identification and i mean there's so much in the space of wearables and and, and technology and stuff like that so is there a space for that like are, are we seeing are we picking up lane cows early with those sorts of things or or not necessarily yes yes we we are there's some some great New Zealand tech out there that is that is doing just that. Um, so early identification uh, with, with companies such as Omni-Eye, they, they, yeah, they're designed for machine learning um, to detect lameness early. I quite like um, technology that uses what 
what we ca currently do. It was just lameness scoring. So these machine learnings that are using videos of, of cows walking just sits quite nice with me. Um, that, yeah, that's how we would identify if we were going out in the study. Um, so they are definitely one, one method and I think a successful method in particular farms that, that could work quite well for early identification. But, you know, bear in mind, they only identify, they don't say the obvious, they don't treat. <laughs> so regardless of whether, you know, what, if we're going to use technology, much like you know, a lot of tech chats recently is the text only the information, what we do with that is critical. And I think, you know, chuck a line to Omnia, they're really good to chat to if you've got, if you've got a farm that's got it on or starting to think about having it on. Um, the, for it to be successful, I, I almost think it needs a veterinary involvement or it needs an animal health, animal advisor involvement um, on many of these farms because if they identify a lot more lame animals, um, we, we, we just got a paper out in the JDS just again got, um, the other week and reporting that the biggest barrier for lameness control is time. And that makes sense. Everything is time. So that's for, for these, these, these farmers, their current workload or current lameness is the biggest barrier is already time. So then we get tech on board and we find even more lame cows. It just doesn't work without assistance from veterinarians or, or hoof trimmers. Um, and that's a really awesome opportunity for us. If you hear people, I would strongly recommend if you hear farmers that have got it in or going to get any form of lameness technology, give them a call and try to work out a plan of just, just to let you know you're, that you're there to, to give them a hand. Yeah. Um, if, if they so need, or just come out there and treat some lame cows, because <laughs> I guarantee you they'll need a hand. Um, but with the tech, I see that as, as a, a decent future, um, but it's not going to saturate most farms. I just don't believe that these, these lambs technologies will saturate a large percentage of New Zealand, New Zealand farms. So then we're still, still left with early identification being so critical. Um, how do we go about it? Right? Like how, you know, what other options are there? And, um, I mean, there's only, in my mind, there's only, we're not here to solve the problems. There's only three ways to improve early identification. One is the technology space. Um, it's nice and, you know, hands-offish. I'm pretty convinced it'll only get better and there'll be more options out there. Um, two is getting technicians or, or sort of audit-based systems. I think there's a really good value add for, um, for lots of on-farm audit systems. Uh, you know, there's, there's a few packages out there. Um, Users an opportunity to not just get a lameness prevalence. I think that one of the biggest value adds we can do is you don't have to get every single lame animal, but we know that farmers, they don't just want to know that there's 2% lame. I think they're wanting to know more if possible, like which animals they are, so then we can do something about it. And I've had many experiences of going out there, doing that, just dropping down as many as possible. And then just saying, I'll come out and do these lame cows tomorrow. And the farmer says, yes, you know, like, like I think that's, that's a, a um, front footing and actually providing that as an option. I think like, obviously we're, if you're going to go at lame school, you're probably only going to be at once or twice a year, but that's still going to be better than nothing. So I think that's yeah. where we need to stand is, is, is a little value add both to the farm, but also extra work for the vets in a good way. Everyone loves doing lame cows. Yeah, but yes, yeah. They, um, it's funny because when I hear you say that, like I was, um, when I was clinical, was mixed, and I feel like we're so quick to offer gold standard in the companion animal space, but we kind of make these assumptions about what sort of time or what sort of money farmers want to spend in these spaces, and and if we don't throw it out there, I guess we'll just never know, will we? Exactly. Like, ninety-five percent of farms might say no, but if five percent say yes, that's for me anyway. That was five percent more than than what currently doing and there may be vets listening to this that this is obvious to them but um i know there's some that yeah that's that 
hopefully there's some new things that they can get out of it. And so was there any other risk factors? So you said even just within those five farms, there was a really big difference between some of the recovery rates on those farms. Was there any sort of consistent risk factors for the delay in recovery on those farms? Not, I don't know, so risk factors, but if we go back to the three buckets that, you know, what what I think define how long an animal has been lame for, one, so it's before lameness, it's, it's going to be their, how long they've been lame for. So before identification, we say how long they've been lame for or their chronicity, so how many times they've been lame again. Uh, that's it's that weird disease of the single biggest risk factor for lameness is a previous case of risk factors, or a previous case of lameness. I just can't say that yeah. enough because it, it's so overwhelmingly powerful for any analyses you do that it's that previous case that makes it much more likely to get this case, which puts you in this hideous negative cycle. Um, so I think there's, when we think about that is, is if you're getting farms that are taking say 20 days for animals to become better on average so we want we need to collect this information first uh, but say that 20 days on average for a cow to get better for, for the average cow to get better i'd be looking at the three buckets so one is you know is there any information out, out there of their chronicity you know are they, are they are they picking up joint infections routinely is that is that what the lame animals that they're doing that they're joint infections that would give you a pretty good indication that their identification or chronicity is poor um second is the treatment so how how gold standard or best practice is the treatment that they're administering and then third is the recovery what things are they doing with the recovery which was which we've um sort of discussed so with that farm in question the one that had 21 days to um was it non-sound uh non-sound rate they had the same treatment and they had the same prevention plans Sorry, sorry, the same recovery plans. I know because we did them. Like Mitch did all the treatments the same, um, and the recovery was managed as close as you know, as similar as you could handle. There's a contract milk was the same on to, on this farm and another farm. So it really left to, you know, what happened to that to that first stage. And you and I both know this farm, and we know the track record. And of those five farms, it was the one that struggled the most with lameness historically. So we don't have hard evidence, but most likely, you know, the, these poor recovery times were due to reduce the chronicity of lameness. Um, and it, well, it won't change every farm. We actually got to chat chat to the farmer about that, you know, showing them the curves to show that actually your, your cows are same farming system or similar farming system. These cows are taking longer. Um, you know, what is it we can do to improve your identification to get onto them earlier? And, you know, they went down with that information, they actually went down a bit more of a hoof trimming route. So they're getting hoof trimmers in. Um, to help you know just to get on top of things earlier they don't get that many well in their mind they don't get that many lame cows but acknowledging that the cows that they do get seem to be worse um, so that was just yeah recording that information gave us gave me a bit more wriggle room to go actually we can improve your identification and it's going to be worthwhile for you to improve your identification I guess by default too, if you're going in, you are doing that recording, you've got a formal plan and you're following up, you're going to start picking up cows earlier by default, yep. aren't you, you know? Yep. And gives um, accountability as well. Yeah. yeah. Now we've, we've touched briefly and I don't, I know that this is probably a different podcast in itself, um, <laughs> but we've talked about <laughs> blocks. Um, I, I just want to touch on non-steroidals and where you see the value yep. there. Um, so we've talked about blocks for every cow. Do you see non-steroidals as a non-negotiable as well. Yeah, and I think that fits really nicely into the, the there's a treatment part of it. So we've got identification and you know, it's easier said than done, but we should be all aiming for early identification of, of these lame animals. We've got recovery and right in the middle is how can we improve treatment? Um, blocks, absolutely, for claw horn. Um, and non-steroidals, we've done a fair bit of work on 
for reviewing the work on non-steroidals. And the, a long story short of it is I, I recommend non-steroidals to every single lame animal um, for, firstly, for welfare reasons. So there's enough information about non-steroidal use in, in, in cattle that lame has been such a painful condition that I think we can justify it that alone. With the caveat, though, that non-steroidals just don't work as well in cr chronic diseases. So um, it's back to that chronicity. I think we, we should be giving them for, for the animal's sake, but outcome-wise with chronicity and lameness, is not, the evidence isn't that strong. Um, but where we do have other evidence is that the actual active hoof trimming, as I mentioned earlier with the preventative hoof trimming, the actual active hoof trimming is quite a stressful and sometimes painful procedure for these cows. We're doing it for the right reason, but it is not a no harm um, procedure that, that we're doing. Um, one of the, the South Island studies with Mark, Brian, Fred and, and Richard, you know, they actually, when, when they, I can't quite remember the thing, but they, they, there was a, a slight negative outcome with some, some of the groups after trimming, uh, like very short, short lived. Um, but at, you know, in, in the US, they have given non-steroidals preventatively to hoof trimming and, and watched them actually walk out better immediately. So, so these are for non-lame animals that they were noticeably better walking immediately after hoof trimming if they got non-steroidals. So for that reason alone, I, I also think that as a vet, we, we should be promoting non-steroidals to, to, to everything for the short-term thing. For uh, outcomes, for, for lameness recovery rates, uh, Non-steroidals by themselves in chronic and chronic lameness disease does not improve recovery rates. I think we can be pretty convinced we've got multiple studies of that, and that is unfortunately where we're sitting with most of the most of the animals. But if we can promote early identification, non-steroidals and blocks, so we have this consistent messaging and acting on, you can get a 50% reduction in their duration of lameness. Not a small amount. We're talking 50% reduction um, for some of these UK bits of work, which I I think. That's, that's huge. We can lead from the front. That as vets, we're going out there, we're giving a block and non-steroidal to, to every lame animal that we see, um, encouraging the farmers to do the same. I, I, I'm very much against the one or the other now. I know, oh, what about the cost of it? But uh, again, my experience, just ask the farmer. Like I haven't had very many, very many say, no, you can only do one or the other. Um, I, I, uh, in fact, we got told off the farm the other day, we're doing a, um, yeah, that, that we didn't give non-steroidals to an animal, <laughs> like oh, a lame really? animal. Yeah, yeah it was for, re for a reason. It's nice yeah, that we get honest. to that point. There's, you know, getting more and more, um, you know, people actually thinking about that as yeah. farmers, which is great. And and the last bit on the non-steroidal is, and I think the biggest win we have is James Wilson's work from the UK, um, looking at 50% reduction in the culling rate of animals treated with non-steroidals at lameness. Again, a humongous difference in the long-term culling rate. I believe the effect in New Zealand will be smaller just because we don't have as big a lameness, but, you know, a bigger lameness baseline. But that being said, you don't need much of a difference in, in, um, in, in culling rate to make that as a financially beneficial tool uh, on top of all of the you know, welfare benefits that we get with non-steroidals. Oh, absolutely. Now, I mean, for a lot, this might be common sense, but I just, um, when we're talking about non-steroidals, I'm assuming you're not talking like a single dose of ketoprofen. No, so the the published research and there's been various uh, various actives using. Most of them have been ketoprofen, and they have all been the equivalent of like so. So the ketoprofen studies have been uh, daily injections for three days. And again, yeah. I feel that's where we can leave from the front if we're prescribing if we're recommending, um, you know, 
veterinary prescription medicines that we are following the um, following the recommended label dose rate, which is for those is is you know, daily for three days. Um, I know for the animal sake, one one will be better than none, but all of the clinical research for the improvements for the culling and for the lameness um, for the lameness recovery, they have been the equivalent of a three-day course of non-steroidals. Well, and I think some really big gains, um, you know, from a from a relatively easy thing to implement, which is ideal. Yes, ideally we'd love every farm to pick it up, but, but for these little things, it is a little win. You know, getting a farm to give both of those when they previously weren't is, is good. Getting a farm to give non-steroidals when they previously weren't is still going to be better than nothing. Um, but I think we have the opportunity to, to lead from the front. And if we are going out and treating lame cows, there's enough evidence now to say that for clawhorn ones that we're giving a block in non-steroidals to all of them, not just the bad ones, not just yeah, not just the ones that I can't get a block on will receive non-steroidals. I think we, you know, if the farmers notice this, they see it and they take it on board. Seriously, this guy last, last week, it's like, why don't you do that? It's like, oh, nice, yeah. Um, so that's that's what I'd like us to be doing is 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 offering, yeah, leading for the front, offering and providing both of those to the lame cows that we see. And I guess um, we're probably kind of getting to the time we need to wrap it up. But if, I mean, do you have any sort of like one or two things that, you know, if if I'm here today and I just want to add one more thing into my, you know, treatment or, or whatever of lame cows, what your advice would be? Um, yep, the, 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 the first one would be what I just said. I think non-steroidals and blocks to as many lame cows as if you are seeing a lot as, as possible. And if you aren't, if you aren't, giving them to say at least 50% of those animals, just, just just maybe step back and think why it is. Is it because a farmer isn't going to pay for it or is it because you don't think the farmer will pay for it? You know, this, they're very different different questions. Is it because you don't know how to put a block on? And honestly, one of those new ones that is a great new block I don't know how to use. Like if I was to go and put that on, I, I wouldn't know how to use it, so I wouldn't be using it. So if those are the barriers, then, you know, there's a chance to, to upskill yourself and, and train in that. So to so that one is... is Try to put non use non steroidism blocks to as many lame cows as possible, and then like self reflection on whether you are or aren't doing that. Um, and secondly, that the easier of the wins is to discuss recovery. So, what are farmers and for your own you know, benefit? What are you doing to track and identify if the animals that you are treated are getting better? And if not, what are you going to do? So that was yeah, get them seen again. Um, and then make sure we're feeding these these animals appropriately. I nearly even wonder you can probably put it together. You know, if, if you are sort of, or you've got people in the practice that are a little bit uh, more uncomfortable with blocks, like a training that also includes some farm assistance. Or you know, like get, the more people you can actually tr get trained up, the better in that respect. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great two-person job, isn't it? You know, it could be a, a senior yeah. vet and a new vet. Or um, I, I'm I'm big honey. I know not. A lot of vet practices do a large amount of lameness, but there are practices in New Zealand that have trained up their technicians or have got technicians in that do their do their lame cow treatment. Small vet small vet clinic that does has you know, a few technicians that goes out and does their lame cow treatment um, under the umbrella. They can then still give non steroidals because it's been prescribed by the veterinarian. The vet's there to back up any challenging cases. It's a model that's huge, you know, through the UK due to the sheer numbers of them. But I think there is in certain practices the opportunity to to add value to, you know, to the business by training technicians up. And do you um, sort of have anything coming up? Is there anything else in the pipelines that you're excited about or is it all a bit hush-hush, can't talk about? Um, it's a bit hush-hush, but I'm also pretty excited to defend the thesis and get that get that out of the way. Um, yeah, there, there will be on, ongoing lameness stuff, I think. Yeah, really looking at – I think there's a lot 
more we can do about the identification side of things. You know, I, I, I look at a lot of this work and research a lot of it. I think you know, we should always be aiming for prevention of a disease. I'm not trying to re remove that, but from my experience doing a lameness risk assessment and using all these tools to identify risk factors and improve lameness at the herd level, such as spending $100,000 on races, I, I, I'm not saying that they're not useful, but they can be a very challenging topic to, to broach, and particularly if you haven't had a lot of experience with lame, lameness um, investigations, whereas every single farm can improve in some ways their, their treatment, the treatment being the identification, treatment and recovery. And selling that as if you improve treatment, we know that that will be a prevention for lameness. So that's really good information of improved treatment, reduced duration of, of lameness will result in a lower incidence of lameness in the future. So you're, you're almost guaranteed to get prevention if you improve the treatment on farm. Well, that's cool. I think um, we can all be a bit um, guilty of wanting that sort of big, you know, exciting yeah. thing, um, <laughs> you know, well, even with your own health, you're like, oh, I've got this supplement that's going to help everything, you know, but um, actually, if we think about it, there's some really small tweaks we can make that will have massive gains out on farm, which is which which does then make it achievable for pretty much every farm that we're going out on. Yeah, I think I think we can we can get an improvement. You know, like say start low, we can we can improve one thing on on all these farms, and it might be a one minute conversation while you're out, you know, putting cedars in. Like, I just think. Yeah, it's a really good opportunity to start talking about lameness around especially around this time of the year awesome oh well thanks so much for taking the time today winston we really appreciate it um and who knows we might have you back on again to discuss um some other things that you've probably been involved on in the future but um really appreciate it and thanks for being here cool thanks ellen thank you very much for having me thanks for listening to the vet chat nz proudly brought to you by verbeck with the support of the nzva if you've made it this far, we'd love to hear your feedback and any ideas you might have for future episodes. If you'd like to get in touch, please email feedback at verbac.co.nz or call 0800 Verbac.